Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on September 22, 2017. Shannon from the Walt Branch Library discusses a variety of nonfiction books. All right, I think I'll go ahead and get started. I'm Shannon. I work at Walt Branch, so if you guys are down that way, come and visit me. Um, I just brought books that I am currently reading. Um, the first one I brought, I don't know if anyone's noticed, you might not have, but Danish culture has become huge in publishing, mm-hmm. and um, there's parenting books, there's design books, there's how to live a Danish happy life books, there's lots <laughs> of um, things coming, yeah, just lots of stuff coming out from the Danish culture. So I picked this up, and it's the little book of Huga. I think I said that. Yes, if you listen to it, he pronounces it really well. I, I don't, huga, huga, huga. It's even got a pronunciation there. Huga. Basically, I can tell you that you need to wear dark clothes, you need to live somewhere cold, and you need to be obsessed with lighting. And there you go. You can be Dutch. <laughs> okay. It's Dutch or Danish? Um, both Danish. Well, this is Danish, but you could. I think it applies to all. I mean, basically, the book is like these little breakdowns. They talk about clothes. They talk about interiors. They talk about lighting. The lighting is very important to the Danish, apparently. I guess you were that far north, I think. Yeah, (laughs) lighting would be important. Yes. It's an odd book. I mean, it was definitely one that I was like, oh, okay, I'll try it. It's kind of interesting, but it's, I, I didn't really get anything out of it because I don't live where it's dark and I don't live where it's cold. Nonfiction. Yes, nonfiction. The pictures are pretty funny. They give you, like, the examples of what you need. Basically, it's like where to be cozy. But if you see more, there's lots more. I do, has anyone seen the movie Frozen? Yes. Yeah. Okay. You know at the begin when it's really cold and they're um, fighting about how the wood is supposed to sit either bark side up or and he flips it and says no it's supposed to be this way. That's in reference to the fact that on Danish television two years ago they lit a fire and people watched it like mad. And then there were all these online arguments about how the wood was stacked and how it should have been lit <laughs> and how they did it wrong and how they should have changed and it. And how bored are you? I know. <laughs> it was the most watched thing on Danish television. I swear, if you don't believe me, look it up because it, 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 I think they incredible. do it every year now. Oh, goodness. So, I mean, they, they have a lot of time <laughs> invested into lighting fires. But I thought that was funny because it's a little reference to that in Frozen. So if you ever watch Frozen, it's in the part where they're all freezing. So I'll pass it around. It's kind of a, I mean, if you're maybe going on a trip, it needs something. If you're really bored. Yeah, it's quirky. I don't know how else to describe it. But um, I listened to it, and the guy who reads it, I believe, is the author. And so he is good with all the terms. And he's got a nice accent. Yes, it is on an audio. Tell me where it hurts. This is also only an audio. It's either in a CD form or you can get it on a download, but there are no book formats of it. Is it really about a dog? It's about lots of dogs. Lots of dogs. The author is Nick Trout, and he is a surgeon at a major hospital in Colorado. And so he compiles a story as like a single day 
but as he says in the um, preface, it's more like he just took funny anecdotes and put them all as a day, but that's not typically his day. He said sometimes he has crazy days and sometimes he doesn't, but this is like a like a fun way to fashion his story. And so then you just walk through his day with him. And as a surgeon, he does not do just general consulting. He will come in and fix a problem. I liked his writing because he talks about like how pets have become so integral to people and talked about the booming industry that has become not only taking care of your pets, but the surgeries you can get for your pets and the hard lessons um, that people have to face, like, do I spend $5,000 to fix my dog's hips? Is that, do I feel, you know, how do you make people feel? And he's got, the story starts out with an older gentleman who brings in his dog that has a gastric problem. And the intern can't fix it, so she calls him at like 4 o'clock in the morning and he comes in and he helps her finish it up. And so you kind of meet the dog and the owner who lost his wife last year and the dog is a gift from the wife. And I was like halfway through, I'm like, if this dog dies, I'm just not going to be happy. Yeah, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. Because I had that experience. I had a customer, I can't even remember who it is, who told me, oh, read Marley and Me. It's the best book ever. Oh, no, And I said, not. does the dog die? Because I cannot handle dead animals. No, 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 no. She flat out lied to me. Yes, she oh. did. Wow. Because at the end of that book, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so the dog does not die, I promise. You can come and get me. <laughs> I think I've listened to that. Um, it's, it's well read. I like it. It's a sweet book. Um, he talks about, like, the kind of quirky dogs people have or, you know, the the exotic animals that people are now getting. And as a surgeon, he doesn't normally see them. So he introduces you. This hospital must be huge because it's in Colorado and they have exotic animal doctors. They have a they have an like a a doctor that's on call and they're pretty much like their OR all the time. Oh, I was wrong. It's not Colorado. It's uh, Boston. Really? Yeah. But it's a really good book. I really liked it. And um, you just kind of meet interesting animals and um, their owners and how their owners and animals kind of go alike. So I always look at mine and think, oh, man, am I really like that? <laughs> So, but it is unfortunately only an audio format, so you can listen to it on CD or you can download it. I read this one actually a while ago and brought it in because when breath becomes air, if anyone's read Being Mortal, I recommend this one as well. It's a good um, side one. You will bawl like a little baby, so as I learned, don't read books that you're going to cry in front of your son because he's like, what's wrong, mom? I'm like, it's a really sad book. But this is about a surgeon, and he, yes, it's very good. And in his second year of residency as a surgeon, he starts to have pain in his back. And at first, he kind of thinks, oh, it's just because I'm too tired or I've been working too hard. Even though he's a doctor and he knows that men in their 30s don't have back pain like this unless it's something severe. So he ignores it for a while and then finally goes in and gets it looked at and realizes that he has cancer. And it's very aggressive form of cancer. 
So the preface starts with the actual author that put the book together for him because the book was put together after he passed away. He, um, you know, heard from the author, waited to hear back, and just kind of let him do it on his own terms. But the book is all about, like, basically facing your death and what you do and how you handle it. And his wife is also a doctor. She's an internal doctor. And they decide before he starts chemotherapy that they are going to freeze his sperm so that they can have children. And then they agonize about, well, do we really want to do this? Because if I'm not here in a year or two years, I'm leaving you with the prospect of raising a child on your own. And they eventually decide to have a child. And the end is heartbreaking. You will ball. It's so good, though. I like it. I think being mortal would be, like, more technical, whereas this one puts a face on palliative care and how it's handled, what you do, what you need to do, kind of stuff. So, and it's beautifully written. Anything spiritual about it? Kind of. He's Indian, but he does not practice his own faith. So it's, I think it's more about like just the reality. of death. Yeah, yeah. So I don't really think, he does not really get into what he's going to experience afterwards. It's more of what am I leaving behind how do I spend my last days kind of thing. So I recommend it for everyone. It's a great one. The Stranger in the Woods. This is a really odd book, and I only picked it up because one of my um, long-term library customers said, oh, you might like it. And I, I don't know. I sit on the fence about it. It's basically about a hermit. They talk about how he lives in this area. So the story starts with him breaking into this Christian summer camp and stealing food from their uh, refrigerators. And then how this cop team swoops in and arrests him. And how they have been trying to arrest him for 20-some years. And then it proceeds to talk about um, Christopher's life. So it's not a true story. It is, it is a, true a true story. story. It yeah. is a true okay. story. And it's it's all about this man who is a hermit and does live in the woods in this one specific area for 20-some years. The thing that sat me on the fence about it is, is there's no great explanation as to why he does this. Like, he never gives a great explanation. The author can't ever give, like, a great conclusion. Like, I just feel... Like, what the heck was the point of this? Because he, he's a he's a well-educated man, and he just walks away from his life one day. Abandons his car in the middle of the woods and just starts walking. And then from there, he sets up a camp. And then the story progresses. He talks about how he, how he lived and how he survived. And I admire the fact that if I was going to be a hermit, it would not be in Wisconsin. Because I couldn't imagine being in Wisconsin in the winter. It'd be in San Diego. Yeah, somewhere yeah. that's beautiful all year round. But he does talk about like how he survives the winter, winters. The thing that annoys me the most is that like he steals from all... Like, he is in an area where there's a bunch of summer homes. 
So he steals from all these homes, and he doesn't ever steal anything expensive. It's batteries, blankets, stuff like that. Yes, and some people would try to leave him stuff outside, be like, here, take this, don't enter my house. And he would ignore that and enter their house and steal a bunch of stuff. And some people were kind of philosophical about it, like, oh, you know, he's not really doing any harm. But other people were really annoyed that this man would continue to steal and steal and steal from their houses. And as they put up security lights and security cameras, he would disconnect them all, take what he wanted, and leave. And then so when he was finally arrested, I think they charged him with 200 counts of burglary. And a lot of people were mad that he just felt that, you know, our houses were your shopping grounds. But he never gives a reason as to why he did this. Like, why he decided, I'm out. I'm, I'm just living like this. There was nothing... There was no, like, spiritual need. There was nothing that he... I mean, he had a good job. He just left. And so... He just dropped out. Just dropped out. And then the back half of the book talks about him being arrested, being sent to prison, and how difficult that was for him because he's used to himself and just the solitary of being with himself in the woods and suddenly he's with all these people and it's loud and it's bright and... So, um, the author does a good job of getting a reluctant participant to actually tell his story. And I found it interesting. I, I would have been infuriated with a lot of those people who, you know, were upset about how he stole things from their house. And the camp was his big target because they always had food. And so he was always there and he stole from them all the time. And a lot of people are like, why is he stealing from a camp for, like, underprivileged kids? And so immoral. Um, but, like I said, it's a well-written story. It's an interesting story. What sat me on the fence about if I liked it or not was that I just never felt there was a conclusion. And, you know, I know that yeah. happens in books, but I sometimes like at least some glimmer of, why in the world would you do this? And there's none of that. He, I mean, he's remorseful for everything he does, but... He knew he was doing was wrong, so. And you said it was based on a true story. It is based on a true story. Yep. I think I agree. It would leave you hanging. Mm-hmm. Well, and the back half of it, like I, I was worried that I was gonna that I was gonna read like the um, prologue and he would have committed suicide because a lot of it after he got caught was that he just couldn't handle any of this. He couldn't handle the noise. He couldn't handle the people. And then they move him back in with his mom once he's out of jail, and he just, he wants to leave. He just wants to walk, yeah. and he knows he can't, but... Was he st still being monitored? Uh-huh, he wow. was still being monitored. He had he had siblings, so his brother was like his, he would drive him to his court dates, and he, he followed all the rules they required of him, mm -hmm. but it was just not what he was used to. I mean, he spent 20-some years in the woods by himself, so... um. Sadly, a lot of the books on this list, I just <laughs> weren't like, you know, they weren't books you'd go, everyone needs to read this. But none of them were like so bad that I'm like, I cannot finish this thing either. So, I mean, they were just, eh. A Life Discarded. It's a true story. Well, it's a biography. The premise is, is that these two professors are walking through a predominantly 
professor neighborhood in England and they see this big trash bin out there and they start kind of like dumpster diving and then they find all these boxes of journals and there's all these drawings and I mean there's just hundreds and hundreds of these journals so they pull them out and they save them and um, the author then starts to reconstruct this person's life is it a woman is it a man how old are they you know, they lived in an area where predominantly was professors at the university. So was this person a professor? What was their interest? And so it's just a reconstruction of a person's life. Most of the journals that the author got were mid-20s and on. So, but there, I mean, there are 148 books. So there's huge quantities of information in here. So he just starts kind of piecing it together and then he doesn't know where to go with it so then he just leaves it and then he comes back to it and he tries to come across like you know are there any references to houses or buildings or times that he can try to put this person and he finally figures out it's a woman she's not a professor but it does sound like she works for as a housekeeper of professors so that's how he's figuring the um, journals found their way into the bin and so from there he just tries to put together this woman's life he realizes that she came from a pretty wealthy family and that she was into drawing and painting and was always waiting to be discovered she thought she was going to have that big moment of discovery and throughout it the author of the journals references this one character and the author always assumes it's a man and this man is like the dominant person in this in this woman's life she's the man is always telling her you're never good enough but there seems to be a love interest between the two well it turns out it wasn't a man it was a woman and it was her piano instructor as the story progresses he finds enough information to actually find the author of the journals and so once he finds the author of the journals, they kind of go back and they reconstruct what he missed, where things were. And she tells the rest of her story to him. And he asks her, why did you write so many journals? And she says, I just like to write. And so she shows him and she just has hundreds more. So it sounds like she was a bit of a pack rat because the man that she worked for let her live in his house. And while they had like a employee relationship he still cared for her so he would he would look over the fact that she would break things and destroy things and so it's a very sweet story it's an interesting way to write a book because you don't know your main character at all and you're you're discovering who the main character is as much as the author is so i i enjoyed that aspect of it and it's got like snippets from the journals, it's got drawings in it, so you get to see what he was building from the journals himself. So I like that aspect of it. I unfortunately read it, or listened to it instead of read it, so I got a little lost, so I had to go back and read sections from the book. So this is one I would not recommend you actually listen to, because I think you really miss something not seeing the journals themselves. So I recommend that one. You Don't Look Like Anyone I Know. This is actually an older book, but I picked it up because it sounded really interesting. Heather is the author, 
and this is her life story, has face blindness. Mm. What it is is that you cannot recognize faces. No matter if it's your mom or your dad, you, you cannot recognize it. And hers is supremely profound. In fact, she has one of the most profound cases of it. So she could be sitting right next to her mom and not know that it's her mom. It's not that she doesn't have the ability to see the person. It's that she can't, her brain cannot put the memories of this face mm -hmm. with the person. But she, does she recognize voices? Yeah, I was gonna say. No, like no. She doesn't recognize anything about mm -mm. Well, she said that her face blindness and a lot of face blindness is just the face. Mm -hmm. So if you put ears and hair, mm -hmm. she can sometimes pull clues from that mm -hmm. and she's really good at that. So, but like if anyone's wearing anything to cover that or when they run experiments with her at Harvard, they remove the ears and the hair, mm -hmm. nothing. She couldn't, I mean, and she can, she can sometimes recognize from voices, but not, not normally. She says most people sound so much. Does it happen at birth or not? Or not necessarily. It... Not necessarily. Um, hers, they don't know. She's an oddity because she didn't suffer. Most people who have it have some sort of trauma, mm -hmm. a stroke, um, a, a really bad bump to the head, something brain that has caused brain damage. Yeah. But hers doesn't have anything to do with that. Her mother is schizophrenic. And so they, she's always kind of thought that maybe this was something to do with that, but there's no research to promote that idea. The problem with this book is she's trying to write two books, and I really wish she would either just decide to write one or two, but at the end she says that her, author, her publisher didn't believe, didn't believe the public would believe her life story. Her life story is insane. Think like the glass castle, mm -hmm. yeah. or what's that other one? And like double it because her mother is schizophrenic, so her mother nails all the windows shut. Her mother puts blankets on the boards or on the windows. Her mother is worried that they're gonna wear out the carpet, so they all have to walk on their knees. Um, <laughs> oh my god! She uh, she thinks that there's somebody after her, so they're constantly moving or they're like chasing down unmarked bands in the middle of the night she lives in this kind of constant state of flux and it's not until she goes away to college that she starts to realize that for the longest time she thought there was something wrong with her because her mom and her dad are both these people that obviously have lots of issues she does have a brother and what annoyed me is that she made reference to him twice, and then you never hear from him through the rest of the book. And it's and well, it's not until the end of the book that she says that her brother has his own story to tell, and out of respect, she won't tell his story. So I have no idea. The brother could be crazy. He could be sane. So it's just her story. If I grew up in a house like that, I wouldn't want to recognize faces. <laughs> I know. So when you get up every morning, a stranger yeah, comes and gets you out of bed as a child. Yeah. That's what yeah. I'm amazed at. Yeah. And see, that's where this book <laughs> struggles. About her childhood? She talks a lot about, like, that's where this book struggles. I think she really wanted to write a book about her childhood and her life growing up with her mom and her dad. But at the same time, I think she really wanted to write a book about 
face blindness to kind of give people an understanding of what it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. And these books are the combination of that too, and they don't go well together. Mm -hmm. Because she talks about going home as an adult and seeing her mom, and her mom is okay for a little bit, and then, you know, something tips her off, and then things go bad. But I'm always like, so were you still having to walk on your knees? You know, like, yeah. there's this dynamic that you never really get the sense, did mom get better? Did she get, Heather get better dealing with her mom? So uh, that's where this book, I think, fails. She talks about how she's always moving schools, and so she never has a really consistent school life, and she has no friends. And then when she gets to high school, she, she meets a boy and she really likes this boy and her mother starts following her and this boy and then she's convinced that this boy's trying to steal things or you know and it's like every relationship this this heather has gets destroyed by her mom and this one day the boy that she really likes that she's been hanging out with won't talk to her won't even look at her and she never figures it out until she goes to a reunion 20 years later and the boy says your mom came to our house and terrified us so it's well, just could she recognize the boy? She says she does. Oh. So it has to be the hair, yeah. the ears, the voice. Yeah, it must be it must be the outside things oh, that she's looking for. Well, and she talks about how she had a friend who was on a board at a college she was working at and the friend came to lunch with her and was complaining about this group of men that she had been in a meeting with. Well, at the end of the lunch, they turn around, and the woman sees all of those men that Heather should recognize sitting at a table right behind them. And the friend is furious and won't speak to her after that. But that's kind of the dynamic she lives in. Mom and Dad uh, separate when Heather is in six or seven. Dad likes to wear women's intimate apparel. But it's never discussed. So he's normal. Yeah, <laughs> but it's never discussed if that's just a choice, if that's a, like, because then she's like, well, my dad will disappear at night. Where did dad go? Like, use your imagination. Yeah, yeah. And, but see, I don't know if I should or if, if, if that, because she threw that out and then never really, but he has all these girlfriends, he gets married, he has women that come into his life, so I have no idea what to do with that information. She talks about how when she would live with him because her mother would just be too much for her to deal with, he would steal her nail polish and wear it. So I have no idea where to go with this information. Like I said, it's an interesting Amazing book. Family. Yeah. And at the end, she does say that her publisher did not think that anyone would believe her life story if she wrote a book just about her mom and dad. And I kind of wish that that published that she had gotten a second opinion or went and talked to another publisher. Because I feel like this book is trying really hard to talk about her parents, yeah. but under the guise of, I have face blindness and this is what. Because that would have been fascinating in and of itself. And the other thing that, I mean, I like about this book is that Heather believes because of the situation she lived in that she has to be crazy. There has to be something wrong with her. So she spends a good deal of her life believing I have to be schizophrenic or I have to have bipolar. There has to be something wrong with me. And it's not until she finally finds out that she has face blindness that it's like, okay, there is something, but it's not what I thought it was. It's not as, you know, it's not as bad as I thought it was. The other interesting character in this is that um, she gets married to a, 
Anyways, they're the they're the organization that don't believe in rules. They think we should get rid of the federal government, and and so she she married. No, no, not that. Everyone should kind of live on their own rules, and we should go back to the gold standard. So she marries this guy, which I find interesting that he would even want to get married. But then he, how could she? I'm sorry. How could she have a relationship if she can't recognize the faces? I don't. She she doesn't like half the time when she, she wouldn't know there. if she was really married to. Somebody. She knows no. anybody. No, not even that. Because there are a couple times they still live in separate houses. The marriage ends pretty quickly. They both live in separate houses, and she tells him one night, "My roof is leaking." So the next morning, she gets up, she goes for a run, she comes back, and thinks there's this utility guy at her house. And the guy says, hey, sweetheart. And she's like, who the hell is this? And, like, he starts talking to her, and he comes up and tries, and she's, like, freaking out. And he's like, it's me, Heather. It's Dan. And she's like, oh. So, I mean, there's there's lots of that. I don't, you know. She, I don't think want she knows normal, though. Probably not. Yeah, yeah and hers is... Um, she was on, she talks about it in there, if you can Google it too, she was on Good Morning America talking about it. She's a professor of literature, and so, I mean, she has, she has excelled in an academic setting the way she hasn't in anything else, so I don't know if that helps her. She's a good writer, like I said, I just wish that this had been either about her life or about face blindness, because trying to shove the two into a 200 change book or 300 page book did not go well I don't think I would have been fascinated to learn about her family I don't know if the you know at the time because we've had so many people like million little pieces these books that claim to be true that are not that a lot of publishers have kind of shied away and said we're not we're not going down the crazy alley because we cannot verify it so I'd say it's worth a read I'm gonna skip down to the last good night um, this one's going to be made into a movie, and I have a feeling they are going to crash and burn before I've even seen it. Jennifer Lawrence is supposed to be the main character. This book is about Betty Pack, who was an American who worked for the British Secret Service um, prior to World War II and then during World War II. The author concedes at the beginning that most of her file has been redacted and in fact will not see the light of day for another 40 to 50 years if any of said file will ever see the light of day. So while he says this is a nonfiction and it's true and he's taken all this research and he does concede that some of it is, is a leap, he left more than he claims to. Betty Pack is a fascinating woman who used the wiles of the bedroom to gain information for the um, Allies prior to World War II and then during. Like I said, I can already see Hollywood messing this one way up. Anyways, she um, comes from a very wealthy family. Her dad was a Marine Corps. Um, he was in the Marines. He was in charge of Gitmo for a while and then moved to Washington, D.C. So she has tons of influential friends and family members. She learns French at a young age. She's schooled in all the classic manners and all that good stuff that New Englanders get school in, I guess. And then gets bored with it instantly. So she spends her teens and 20s kind of running around. 
she finds out she's pregnant and realizes that she needs to get married and get married fast. So she sets her eyes on Arthur Pack, who is an Englishman who is portraying himself to be much more wealthy and educated than he actually is. He's a diplomat to the United States in the 1920s. So they get married and he realizes right away that one, she's pregnant, and two, that kid is probably not his. <laughs> so on their way to their honeymoon in England, he tells her, you've got to get rid of this kid. And she agrees and then reneges on the agreement and has the baby in England. Arthur then proceeds to find a family who this child will go to and they give the child they give the child up and then Betty spends the rest of her life through these kind of ebbs and flows of being like I'm going to be a great mother and goes and sees the child and realizes that's not going to happen so I think she says that she only meets her son two or three times and only writes him a couple letters through his life Betty is very much about Betty and anything she does the problem I have with this book he doesn't want to admit that she's somebody who finds enjoyment in other men and other places than on a ballroom. And so he, oh, he, he's like, her tradecraft to seduce this man. What tradecraft? She was like 19. She wasn't like trained in CIA headquarters. So that kind of annoys me. And he never explains, one, if she ever got any training from anyone, two, where that would have happened. So, like, the odd terminology gets me sometimes with this. But um, Betty uses her husband's diplomatic status to see the world. They live in um, Chile, they live in Poland, and then she comes back to the United States. Um, while she's in Poland, she starts hanging out with this crowd of artists and low-level diplomats and things like that and takes a lover and through him they just kind of talking pillow talk as they call it in the book and he starts letting things slide and so she turns around and tells somebody that works at the embassy about it and then mi6 realizes this could be useful so then they start telling her like you need to probe for this you need to probe for this so that's kind of how it starts and then it progresses from there so they decide that they want Betty in the United States um, they go into a lot of how the United States even though being a neutral state was allowing Britain to set up covert operations in the United States and running spies through the United States prior to World War II so they want her there. And then the back half of the book is basically the British need the Navy's codes that they use to communicate with their ships before they invade Africa. Well, that's like saying, I would like the true cross of Christ. Could you go get that for me today? Because that would be fabulous. This is like an impossible task. And they have no way to get in. Well, here comes Betty. Betty has met and seduced a man who worked in the um, the Vichy government, which basically was a shell for the Germans to run operations out of the United States because the Vichy government was cooperating with the Germans. Betty had met and seduced a man who worked in the Vichy government, so they used her to use him to get in. 
So it's all about her getting these codes from their offices. Mm -hmm. And it's very low tech. So if you watch any James Bond movies now where it's all like technological, <laughs> they had to break a window and crack a code. And it was not it was not like high tech here. But it's interesting if you like spy novels, if you like that kind of intrigue, this is a good book. Um she is not a woman who has a lot of moral code when it comes to marriage and other people's marriages. So if that is uncomfortable, I would not recommend this book. Well, she obviously likes sex. Yeah. <laughs> Just not with her husband. Well, with any of her No, no it's real. No, it's real. Oh, she is a real woman. Yeah. Um, you, she was real. There yeah. aren't too is many. Is it written like a story? Um, no. Well... It's written like a story, but like I said, the thing that I have a problem with, and the author is not great, he always talks about tradecraft, and her tradecraft taught her to go slow when trying to get a man interested. I have no idea where he's getting these terms from, because <laughs> I never got the impression that she was ever formally trained. She just knew how to seduce men, and knew how... <laughs> Maybe you're defining was the term gift. differently than yeah. he would. Yeah, I yeah, I just thought Maybe it was odd. It. it doesn't really it's a meaningless term. Yes, but but I guess to me it makes it sound like she yeah. has gone through like formal CIA I, or MI six training I and I never got that impression. Yeah. So I, I, I just I thought that was kind of an odd thing, but she's I mean a she's a natural. Yeah. And <laughs> I just Yeah. Yeah, it's a good book. I mean, there aren't, I went and Googled her, there aren't too many pictures of her. There are very few. And like the author says at the beginning, most of whatever she did and most of whatever was passed is redacted and probably will never see the light of day. So goodness knows what this woman found out between the sheets oh. for men. So That picture, she's a lovely person. Yes. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's going to be made into a movie. Mm -hmm. So she stayed married to the different. She married Arthur and stayed married to him, and then told him before she went back to the United States that she didn't want to be married to him anymore. She gave him a letter basically saying it was all my fault. I slept around. He's not to blame. But because of the war, it was difficult for her to get a divorce. It's also implied in there that MI6 felt that she would be much more valuable as a single woman versus a woman with a husband, especially a husband that was a British diplomat yeah. attached to her. So um, she was a spy, true and true, and felt no qualms about shedding this man. Yeah. Um, she does marry Charles, who is the... Um, Frenchman that she seduces, mm -hmm. but this for book purposes. huh for work purposes. I don't know. I think she truly likes this oh, man, but that doesn't prevent her from later on in her life cheating on him with someone else. So, but anyways, because the there was a book Talk published about, about her right mm -hmm. after her death by another spy, mm -hmm. and that was the man that she ran off with late in life and told her story to. And then went back to her husband. And how did she die? Uh, she had jaw cancer. I think she was in her fifties when she passed away. She lived hard, fast, and short. It's an interesting story, but I can truly see Hollywood screwing this up. Yeah. 
It's like the story of the guy with the Enigma machine. What was his oh, name? Yeah. Alan Turing. If you look up about him, that is that movie is total fiction. He didn't discover it. It was a group of a hundred people. All the things that in this mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. which people believe in all their lives, go, oh, oh, he's the one that did it. I but thought, he didn't. But no, when I thought in the movie, yeah. though, they did show all the, the people waves that were in it. Yes, mm-hmm. but well, they lead you to believe. That lead you to believe. And as in, they lead you to believe a lot of things happened that really didn't happen. Yeah. And they do say in there, I did think it was interesting, they do talk about the Enigma machine and that going on because the British were the ones, that group was actually the ones dictating what they needed mm-hmm. to figure out the codes. And one of them was those naval codes that they needed. But they talk about how good spies realize that they're just one puzzle piece in a very big picture. And so they might be told to do this and not know why this is important, but they trust their handlers and the people ahead of them to be giving them assignments that will, you know, fit a big picture. So, all right, I brought in Forensic. And I just picked this one up because... I was bored, and they recommended it to me as a book that I might like. Apparently, I was reading way too many medical books at the time. If you listen to this one, the woman who reads it has a lovely Scottish accent, and it's just charming because her pronunciation of words is just endearing. If you like CSI, if you like kind of criminal investigation, I think this is a book you should read. It breaks down all of the different aspects of a crime so what is a forensic scientist what is um just a basic cop doing what do she has in here i think she broke it down a pathologist a toxicologist an entomologist so what they do um how they are important to crime scenes and then what i found charming was that each each chapter or each section starts with a story of a crime and then where this field of science either one came about or how it became important to the criminal justice program so all of these are british crimes so and she does make reference to a couple of american ones but they're all british and then they talk about where they failed the science has changed um what has gone right things like that so I found it really interesting because there was a lot of stuff in there that you're like, where do these people come from? The back end that I, um, they talk about a prosecutor and things like that in the courtroom. And that was where I found it was really interesting because they talk about how defense lawyers are destroying scientists and how scientists don't want to have anything to do with this process anymore because... It's not that they're questioning the science. Sometimes there is bad science, but a lot of times it's just, can they destroy the person enough to ruin the credibility of whatever they say? And it's, yeah, and it's destroying the actual, you can not like what it says, but here are the true facts of the crime. If there was something wrong with the science done, that's fine. But So I, I was very disheartened by that. I would not recommend reading this or listening to this if you're eating, if you have a weak <laughs> stomach, because it does get a little graphic, unfortunately, because... So of, do her books. Her books? Val McDermott writes extraordinary... Oh, really? Mysteries. Really? Oh, really? Oh, oh. yeah. And she is Scottish. Oh, is she? Yeah. Oh. So what are her mysteries about? 
crime. Well, <laughs> are they told like now? Are they told in the 1800s? Are well, they now. like Jack the Ripper? No, they're and they're police procedurals. Mm. But that's interesting that she would do a mm -hmm. nonfiction about mm -hmm. her area. Of well, I mean, the author made reference to like, I based this person off of this, so I kind of got a vague sense that the author wrote. I didn't realize she was prolific in writing mystery novels or crime novels. Well, I like, I really found this book really fascinating. Um, like I said, it is graphic in that they, you know, they talk about a lot of body parts. Um, since it is about crime, unfortunately, there are things about children. So if that puts you off, you may not want to read it. But other than that, I found she does a great job of doing the history of where these fields came from and how they play into when a crime scene happens and stuff like that. So, okay, I have not finished this one, so I don't, I won't spoil it for you. The Lost City of the Monkey Gods. So far, it's not bad. Basically, it's a group of scientists. He's the journalist. There's a photographer, and they are going into. They call it hell. It sounds like it from the amount of stuff they have to do. Um, to look for this lost city, the civilization. It's kind of like any of you read The Lost City of Z. Yeah. It's, it's like that, except this is much more technically savvy. Um, he does a tremendous amount of research for his books. He yeah. does. And uh, like I said, I'm about halfway through. And at this moment, I'm not sure there's any city. Because the people who have come back from the area talk about, oh, I found this artifact or I found this. And the two people that have claimed definitively that they have seen the lost city were gold diggers. They just kind of made this story up as a cover so that they could go and dig up gold. And I, I don't even know how it got past the original people because it's so obviously fictitious. So they're going in to look for this city and see if they can find the civilization. And it's a fiction. It's nonfiction. Oh, it's nonfiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a true story. Mm -hmm. so. Very good. Wow. Like he this. writes good fiction, too. He does, he does. write yeah. good fiction. Yeah. I, yeah. I like his other nonfiction, The Monster of Florence. Um, it's about a serial killer in the oh, 50s right. in that's Italy. Right. So, it's a good one. And he writes with Lee Child. Child. Yeah. 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 Those are good. Yeah, they are. Has to be then. Well, that's all I have. If you have any. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries podcasts on Facebook.